You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Sean Parsons, who is using Django and Python to power an e-learning and e-commerce platform called Confectionary Connect. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a great being here. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site? Yeah, so my name is Sean Parsons. I'm a full-time senior backend engineer for uh, Fidelity Investments, a subsidiary, but nevertheless. Confectionary Connect is a platform dedicated to providing people who are aspiring confectionary professionals or would like to learn more the ability to watch courses um, with a subscription-based model. Okay. Do you just want to give maybe a TLDR on what confectionery is? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a pretty broad spectrum, but um, it could, it's anything regarding sweets and how to, how to make sweets. So a lot of our courses deal with more artisanal type of confectionery goods. So being able to model fondant, which is you know, basically hardened sugar into characters, uh, decorating cakes with sugar flowers. So you're more high-end type stuff, but um, our focus is also to provide bread and butter type sweets that you could sell on a more regular basis than maybe the more artisanal stuff as well. Oh, okay. And when it comes to the e-learning aspect of this, would this be like a video course that people can sign up for? So the the e-learning part of it, it's it's a subscription-based model, so some of the courses are free to watch. The only thing that's required is a user account um, in Django, a user auth model. <laughs> and then you can watch uh, courses. The subscription part is a requirement for some courses. So some courses we designate that a basic plan is required to be able to watch it. So it is a collection of videos. And um, we are using HLS videos as they're more performant than your MP4s. Okay. So are you the only developer on this project or do you have a small team working on it? Yeah, I'm the only developer. I I work on it uh, my free time after work as well as on the weekends. Um, It's been a very interesting project to work on because it's not really something I've done before. And I had to learn a lot of FFmpeg stuff to be able to process videos after they get uploaded in uh, HLS and then upload them to AWS, which was something I haven't done before, but um, I'm very happy about how it came out. Oh man, we have some good stuff to talk about, that's for sure. (laughs) So how long did it take to develop the platform so far? So I piggybacked off of Sailor. uh, Sailor. It's a e-commerce platform, open source project written in Django. And I used that because I wanted to have the ability to have a shop so I didn't want to build a shop myself from scratch. and But I knew that the course part of the platform was going to be custom. And, you know, I, I've used Django extensively in the past. And, I you know, it just made a lot of sense, you know, when it comes to permissions the and everything. It just makes a lot of sense. Django provides a great foundation for stuff like this outside of the box. So I used Salier. And then I started creating the subscription-based model kind of working it into the existing Sailor project. And uh, I used Stripe for the payment processing. So I had to do a custom integration there to be able to handle payments and stuff like that. And um, that was relatively easy. Uh, Stripe's API is really nice. 
And uh, the whole project, the portion that I think the, the custom portion took about three months to build. Okay. And that's three months kind of just like weekends after work when you can fit in some time here and there. Yeah. So I would spend about uh, two to three hours after work, depending on, you know, how heavy my workload was that day at work. And then on the weekends, you know, eight to 10 hours a day uh, for about three months. Um, luckily, the period that I was working on getting the project up and running the workload at my job was actually low. So I was able to contribute during the week at a higher level, which allowed me to get it done in three months. Nice. So how long has it been up and running for? Uh, so we released uh, the end of December. So December 31st, we released. The project itself was up though in the beginning of December, but we were still strategizing how to do marketing and what was the best bang for our buck. But yeah, it was up in December. Okay. So right now, roughly, you know, how many courses do you have on the platform? Like what type of like visitors go to the site? Do you have those metrics available to share? Yeah. Um, so we have, I believe, 10 professionals that are under contract. And um, I believe we're at close to 30 courses. So obviously things took a turn for the worse when Corona came around and we kind of slowed the uploading of courses due to all the unforeseen issues that came and arise from that. But we have about 30 courses. Uh, actually, I'm looking at here, 34 total. Seven are free. Uh, we have 10 professionals signed. And our user traffic is around 200 to 250 users a month. That uh, We're not doing any marketing at the moment, but all of our traffic is pretty much organic. Right, so people just Googling for some term and your site comes up? Yep. Um, so did a little bit of SEO, not too much, but enough to generate a decent amount of traffic, um, something that I can build on if need be. Right. Yeah. That's very cool to hear. So I, I didn't know at the beginning that, you know, this isn't just a platform you've built for yourself to, to put your own courses on. It's almost like almost becoming like a marketplace where other people can put their courses onto it. Yeah. I mean, that's the goal, right? Um, so my mother does some of the courses. She's, a uh, She's a hobbyist confectioner. She really enjoys to make sweets of all different kinds. And um, so some of our courses, primarily our free ones, they're from my mom. And we recorded them in-house and I edited them. And um, that was just to provide, obviously, as a user comes to our platform, they want to see a decent amount of courses and they would kind of like to see some free ones prior to making a commitment. So, um, but yeah, the ultimate goal is to have... Uh, professionals from multiple backgrounds, meaning speaking different languages, be able to become uh, a teacher on the platform, upload their own videos. Uh, that way, the course space just grows organically over time. And it's, it, it's just going to be easier to manage than us trying to record all of this stuff ourselves and edit, edit it all of ourselves as well. Right. Yeah, that's super cool that you were able to put together all of that, just working basically weekends and a little bit here and there, because it sounds like it's a, it's a pretty complicated platform from a technical perspective, right? If you're able to like distribute funds to different instructors on your course like that or on your platform. Yeah. So that was one of the things that I thought about first is how am I going, what's the business model for this, right? Because if, you know, I'm charging $20 per subscription, what's the split? What's the what's the share model here with the professionals and um it ended up being about 50 50 
So 50% of income from subscriptions stays in-house. And that's obviously because, um, you know, taxes that we would have to pay as well as uh, marketing initiatives. So it just made sense that 50% would have to stay in-house to be able to cover and recoup the costs of having the platform up as well. And um, so basically what I do at the end of the month, um, I have a cron job that runs. It runs daily, but because payouts to professionals are actually done based on performance. So we take 50% of the total uh, amount made through subscriptions. That gets put in a pool. And then we calculate how well a teacher did based on their views. So it's kind of like YouTube in a sense where they pay out based on views. Um, that's the kind of model that I went with because it seemed the most just instead of just taking 50% and distributing it evenly. I don't think that would be fair if one person is getting 80% of all the views on the site. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a very, very, very tricky problem to solve because even with the model that you've gone with as well, it gets to that point maybe where, you know, if you had a lot of different instructors or professionals putting those courses up, then the money just trickles to the top kind of, right? It's like the top 5% get like 90% of the revenue. Yeah. That's a problem that I think no one's quite figured out yet, to be honest with you. Um, I think every platform is a victim to that, whether it be eBay, Etsy, Amazon. And I think it's something that it's something that's in the back of my mind on how do I, how do I at least make this better for like a new teacher, right? They're excited about the platform. They want to be able to have uh, people viewing their courses. How do I make it so that it's just for everybody where it's not like first come first serve type of thing where the first person that comes and creates courses and uh, saturates the entire course list with their courses basically is just the highest income gross earner, you know? Yeah, tricky for sure. Now, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you kind of picked Django because you were familiar with it. Were there any other decisions like that went through your mind to go with Django in the end? Like, did you compare it with other technologies, like maybe ones that may have had different libraries that may have made it easier to, for you to build this or... You just stuck with Django because that's what you know? Uh, so I was torn um, because I thought about scalability. And it's not to say that Django can't scale, but I was thinking to myself, you know, if I, if I write this in a language like Go, because uh, I also write Go, you know, it would, be, it would be really fast. But then it's always the trade-off, really fast but not productive, um, the lower level you go with a programming language. So Django is just... It's abstracted away all of the really common functionality that's required for a site like this where, you know, you have your users, you could easily build permission classes, um, and it's just easy to create functionality on top of your, your existing models with, you know, custom query sets and managers and stuff like that. So when I really sat down and thought about it, I, I chose productivity over speed. And it's not to say that Django performs poorly when it comes to, to certain aspects. It's just productivity is probably the most important thing, especially when you're doing a side project. Um, you want to be able to get something out the door uh, before you burn out. I've built a lot of projects that were really awesome, but got burnt out by the time they were completed because I was too focused on, oh, I'm going to build the fastest API or, you know, this is going to perform so fast. I think it's more important to get something out first and then iterate on it. And Django is excellent for that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally guilty of that too, right? It's like sometimes I'll just 
build a new side project and look at like what's the latest uh, coolness right now and you go and try to build your platform or whatever you're building in that and yeah it just becomes like I don't know like churn almost like you don't really get anything done other than just it's almost like anxiety inducing right like you're just stuck in like an indecision loop so when it comes to this Django app are you taking advantage of Django's admin yeah actually I am so I'm using admin heavily for translations so the project currently supports three languages English Spanish and Portuguese Portuguese because uh, I'm Brazilian and <laughs> it's relatively easy for me to be able to translate English into Portuguese and vice versa and Spanish I think any project that is thinking about internationalization I think that probably would be the first language you would want to support as that's probably one of the more widely spoken languages in the world. So uh, the Django admin, I'm using model translations. It's a package for Django, and it basically allows you to add on your languages setting in your settings.py file. It basically creates the fields you designate in these other languages. So it doesn't require a join like some of these other translation packages where it has to go to another table for each language. Um, so I use admin a lot to be able to populate those text fields with the other languages. Nice. So I'm actually not too, too well versed with Django, but I know it does have the concept of, of creating Django apps. Do you use that feature as well? So I have apps, but not ex like exportable apps. They're within the project. So. Right. But do you have like your code base broken up with them? Like you have a user's app and maybe like an enrollments app or whatever you name stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So it's subjective how you want to split things up. But yes, the project is broken up into, I would say, about 15 different apps. Okay. Can you rattle off maybe a couple of, of names of those apps? Yeah. So I have um, shop, product, uh, blog, subscription, courses, and... Those are the ones I can think of right off the top of my head. But yeah, there's definitely, oh, and Profile. Um, it's kind of its own thing. Uh, there's definitely at least 10 or more Django apps. Okay. I only bring that up because it's kind of cool to see how other people kind of, you know, create boundaries in their own, own application, right? Like those little individual apps are kind of like a way to abstract certain functionality. And, you know, what they say, right? Naming things is one of the hardest things to do in programming. So always good to see how others are breaking their things up. Yeah, and it's, it's a subjective thing where, you know, somebody might choose to include certain models together instead of choosing to create a whole other app. But I try to break it off as like feature sets, right? So like a profile to me is a feature set. Um, courses is its own feature set. And a shop is its own feature set, so on and so forth. So I like to think of, it, think of them as like that, like a feature set. Right. So when it comes to something like courses... That could be kind of a big one. Like, I don't know much about your platform, but you can maybe have things like, I don't know, sections and lessons and videos and transcripts and discussions and whatever else. Correct. That's actually, you're, you're very close. You almost defined my models.py file. <laughs> uh, right. So uh, high level, there's courses, sections, and videos, each with, you know, foreign keys to, relating to themselves. So course is the highest level. Um, so that's going to be like, you know, your kind of container. It's a course. It's a high-level concept. And then you have sections, and then videos are tied to a section, right? So a confectionery professional might want to designate a section to, like, preparation, right? And then um, decoration. 
and they want to have that logistical separation of the videos that are associated to that section. Yep. So do you have any like interactivity between people who take the course to be able to like ask questions and get feedback from the uh, professional or anyone else? That was something I thought while building it. I just didn't know what was the best way. I was looking at um, I was looking at like kind of commentary packages, you know, to be able to like ask questions. I think there is that that large one um, starts with a D. A lot of people use it for comments and, and oh, discuss, discuss. I was thinking about using discuss, but I didn't. I couldn't quite think of where on the app that that question and back and forth would go in. So I was kind of struggling with that a little bit. Right. Maybe at the bottom of every video or something like that. Yeah, that, that's actually a good idea. So this application composed of many different Django apps, is it a monolithic app? Like in general, is it just like one mono repo? Yes, it's, it's a monolith. And, you know, uh, to be honest with you, I find myself always more productive in a monolith environment. Um, than in a microservice architecture. That's that's my choice. We use microservices at work and I haven't had a very good experience with it logistically when it comes to things like deployment and testing. Yeah, no, I'm all with you on that one. Like microservices totally make sense, but I kind of see it almost as something you would do not from like a web performance scale, but from like a team scale. You know, it's like if you have you know, 200 developers across like 32 teams, then sure, if everyone can work on stuff independently, break your app up. But if it's just you working on the project, like, I don't know, I wouldn't go microservices from day one, probably. I, I agree. And if it's something that at some point, if you like the whole microservices route, I still think doing a monolith to begin with is probably better for productivity. And if at some point you have enough monitoring to understand where the load or the bottleneck is in your system, then break that portion of the app out and make that its own service versus just deciding to go microservice to begin with, which is what we did at my current job. And we don't even have anybody using the app yet. So we're preemptively building something incredibly complex, especially from a CI, CD deployment uh, development process that we're not reaping the rewards yet, you know? Yeah, that's one cool thing about Django. And I mean, other frameworks sort of have this concept also, but you know, you can still be productive as a solo developer and, you know, figure out what, what you could potentially break out into services later just by using the apps feature. And whether or not you decide to break them out is up to you. You don't have to, and it's all good if you do or don't. Agreed. Yeah. So this application, do you know maybe roughly like how much lines of code is are we talking about here? So Sailor is actually a pretty hefty um, third party. Um, I would say I've contributed 15 to 20,000 lines of code um, to be able to complete the project in three months. And um, Sailor is probably 70 to 90, I would say. So total code base is over 100, and that's not including tests. I've had to do some custom adjustments to the Sailor code base to get it to do what I want, such as shipping prices. So... Uh, I have made modifications to the Sailor project as well. I had to learn enough to be able to make adjustments and enhance it to do what I needed it to do. Right. But I think you mentioned before, like the whole e-learning or course aspect of all that and the subscriptions and all that is all custom. That's part of the 15K lines of code that you wrote, right? Yeah. So that's purely custom. That's not leveraging anything that Sailor provided at all. Right. That's pretty cool. I mean, 
you know, it's hard to say exactly what your platform is because I haven't seen like the back end and all that, but getting all of that functionality out of, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 lines of code is, is actually pretty remarkable, especially if that includes all the billing logistics stuff. It does. And the, I like to build Django apps that are kind of autonomous and I use signals a lot. I, I try to keep my logic outside of like the view life cycle um, because if I make an adjustment uh, on a model, inside of the Django admin, I want it to behave exactly as if I did it through a view. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so like a lot of that stuff is kind of done on a signal. So like if somebody watches a video, you know, a signal might trigger off and do things. A lot of the code base is actually pretty simple, but there's a lot of cron jobs to kind of handle the payout system in the background. Okay. Yeah, we can definitely get into that one for sure. About, about the crown jobs, I guess that could maybe lead into like, are you using something like Celery with Redis or no? Absolutely. I'm using Celery extensively um, together with uh, Celery Beat to be able to do the scheduled tasks um, that need to run periodically. And I'm also using um, Celery Flower or Flower. I've heard two ways of saying it um, to be able to monitor the task and make sure that everything's working correctly. Right. And just for listeners out there, Celery Flower, that is the web UI, if I remember correctly, or no? Yeah, that's the web UI that kind of just has an oversight on all the tasks. Um, if they were successful, you're even able to apply rate limiting via the, uh, the UI. So if you notice some task uh, is expensive and, and you might want to put a cap on it, you can do that through the UI, which is pretty cool. Oh, yeah, that is pretty handy because usually that's like some decorator you would throw onto the task at the code level. Yeah, I mean, I've used it. Uh, you have to know how to use it. I think there's like a specific way. You have to put like the number, the integer, um, then a slash, and then the frequency. But you're able to do that adjustment on the UI. Right. So when you said cron jobs before, are you like using literal cron jobs or is it just all through the beat uh, task with Celery? It's through the beat. I kind of use it as a general statement cron job, but um, it's through Celery beat. I use a configuration-based approach, so I define um, the tasks I want to run as well as the frequency as part of Django settings or the salary settings, and then those tasks run. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I do here. It's a pretty cool setup. Big fan of salary. Me too. I mean, it does. Most of my site depends on salary for it to do what it needs to do. Right. Do you maybe want to throw out maybe some of those uh schedules that you have running. It's always a little bit interesting to hear about that. Yeah, so um, every day at 11.59, I calculate what the payout is per professional. So as the day goes on and people are watching videos, um, how much a professional is expected to get could change, right? Um, depending on what videos are viewed. So I need to continuously keep track of that. Um, I don't want to do it on the fly, and I need to know whether it's the actual payout that I need to give them. So I need to know whether it's the end of the month. So there's a lot of little date utilities that I needed to kind of do to make sure that uh, I know whether this is the end of the month or not. And um, so I'm continuously, every 24 hours, um, updating a couple of database tables so I know what the expected payout is for a, uh, an individual each day. And this also powers a dashboard for the for the professionals that they can see what their expected payout is per day. Oh, nice. So is that expected payout like an estimate based off of 
some percentage or do you like factor in the exact exact amount? So the expected payout is based on how much money was earned from subscription in the past 30 days. And then obviously, like before I told you, we get 50% of that. And then we, we get the total of views done on the site within the past 30 days and then divide by how many views they got to get a percentage. So if 50% of the pie is $100 and there's been 100 views on the site in the past 30 days and that person had 15, then they're going to get a payout of $15. So we basically just try to calculate what percentage of that pie that that person's going to get based on their views. Right. Yep. That makes total sense. I just know it's a little bit tricky sometimes. Like, I guess from the perspective of selling an individual course like that, it's like you have, you know, Stripe's transaction fees to take into account, but sometimes you don't get that data back until you get like a webhook from them to analyze it. Otherwise, you're kind of just dealing with, oh, well, maybe it's like 5% less. Yeah. Uh, so that's not something when we released, we were really thinking about too much um, because we just wanted to get something out there. We're will, we're, we were willing to eat that cost just to begin with and just focus on getting a product out there. And if we need to make adjustments, um, that's fine. Okay. And I guess just for clarity here, uh, are you working with just Stripe or Stripe and PayPal, Braintree, some other payment gateway? So there are other payment gateways, although Stripe was the easiest to work with. And for our subscription-based model, it was it was really easy to go ahead and set up a subscription inside of Stripe, get their UUID or their unique identifier for this um, plan. I, in their system, they call it a plan. And then be able to assign users to a plan. Um, I think a lot of the time, a lot of my time was spent on actually doing the downgrades and upgrades of plans on my application side. Uh, that was a little bit technically difficult um, trying to manage state between Stripe and my system and then being having to replicate a lot of their models inside of my system as well. That was kind of tedious, but as of right now, I still think Stripe is probably the easiest to work with. Right. So did you implement their new API, like the payment intents for SCI? No, I do plan on upgrading to the new payment checkout. I have not used payment intents yet. Okay, and the payment checkout, is that the one where the whole entire checkout is hosted on their site? So that's the one where we create a form on the back end with the correct data attributes and put Stripe.js on the front end, and they go ahead and create a form, and they take care of the payment processing and give us a token back. Ah, so what is that? That is uh, Stripe Elements, I think, maybe, possibly. It's the legacy Stripe checkout stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, it gets confusing. They have so many different API types or feature sets. Yeah, it makes it difficult to know what's the right to use for what situation. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I wish you luck when you upgrade to the SCA stuff, if that were to ever occur. Yeah, I think moving forward, we, we want to use Stripe for payment processing um, on our side when customers make payments. But we want to use TransferWire um, to distribute payments out to other professionals. And that's because TransferWire does allow of depositing in other countries in different currencies. So we can accept payments in USD and deposit it in somebody's account in India in their, their currency. I'd rather use an API and um, Stripe does USD very well. I would have to create a subscription for each currency, 
which is kind of annoying. Yeah, definitely. And I guess going back to what you said before too about, I mean, this is unrelated to this, but like duplicating some of Stripe's models like for APIs on your end through models, did you also end up duplicating uh, coupon codes locally too or no? Yeah, it was kind of, and I don't really know another way to get around it because you do need a reference in your system for something that exists in, you know, in Stripe. So it, it is kind of annoying that I have to have like a subscription model. I have to have a plan model. Um, I have to have like a transaction uh, and an invoice model. And um, I'm connected to them via webhooks. So if somebody like cancels a subscription, uh, we pick that up and uh, send out an email like, you know, we're sorry to see you go. Please let us know, um, you know, if anything happens. So I really like their webhook stuff because it allows to create kind of a distributed um, application where you can actually just go ahead and fire off tasks based on things changing. But having to maintain state between two systems, uh, that hasn't been the most enjoyable thing. Yeah, I know it can get very tricky and it's very dangerous when, you know, your state doesn't match Stripe state then, like errors start to happen, like weird edge cases occur. And I think that's why some people, when they build this stuff, they always just do API calls, right? It might seem expensive, but they just rely on Stripe being the source of truth and try to store as minimal amount of things on their side as possible. Whereas I try to replicate what they're sending me. So I have like a copy of it, but it does make for more work on my side for sure. Right. Yeah. I think if I were in your shoes, I'd go your route too. It's like, you know, I don't know. I can't sleep at night knowing if someone, you know, every time they go and view their payments page or something like that, they're making like four API calls to Stripe just to get a response back. I'd have to have that locally in my own database. Yeah. And that's how I felt too, which is why I kind of replicated stuff. Yeah. So by the way, speaking of uh, your app and maybe people poking around different areas of it, is this a server rendered app using like Django templates with a little bit of JavaScript here or there, or is it API based with like a React front end? It is server side rendering. Um, that is where I feel most productive. And I do have intentions on converting it over to an API eventually at some point. And then, you know, putting an SBA on front of it, uh, as well as a mobile app at some point. But I think you could get pretty far with an app like this that's server rendered before you need to make that jump. And I've taken a look at competitors and they're also doing server-side rendering and they're leveraging platforms that are, uh, how do I say this? They don't perform very well at all to say, the, to say, to be nice. Uh, their, pl their platforms like WordPress, um, what are some of the other ones? Shopify type things. Mm -hmm. um, you name it, those types of platforms. So they don't even like bundle JavaScript assets at all. And I'm using Django Compress, which, you know, bundles all your JavaScript, bundles all your CSS. So even though my app is server rendered, I feel like it does perform well. Usually it does load within less than 150 milliseconds. Yeah, that's a really good response time. And even, yeah, like building something like, you know, a video course platform, totally, totally, totally could be done with server render templates with just a little bit of JavaScript. Like I know uh, the platform I'm building as well, it's like, yeah, I mean, you embed the video player and then you have a table of contents somewhere. And, and most of it is just, you click a link, new content gets sent from the server and you get a new version of the page. And uh, yeah, a little bit of JavaScript goes very, very long ways. Yeah, I think for what I'm building, it's fine. Like if I was building maybe something that was a little bit where my audience was more tech savvy, it'd be different. But I think for what I'm doing, it's fine. Yeah. Now, speaking of maybe embedding video players, which video service did you choose? I chose to go video.js. It did tend to have 
significant amount of support and it's free. And uh, I didn't have to do too much to get it working out of the box. Um, I did have to do some custom stuff for different captions. So I translate videos that are uploaded to the platform as well in other languages. So when videos get uploaded to my platform in Portuguese, uh, I go ahead and create subtitles in English and in Spanish. And if it's in English, I create it in Spanish and Portuguese. So I have different captions for each video. And um, that was one thing that I had to, it wasn't very difficult because they do have like a API for you to be able to do this stuff. And Video.js made it pretty easy to be able to provide these different captions. I just had to basically do a for loop with my, my uh, template. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't used Video.js. It sounds like it's probably just the video player itself, right? It's not like a video transcoding or like a Vimeo or Wistia type of service? No, yeah. It just, it just renders the video. So uh, by the time you feed whatever file into Video.js, it's supposed to be done and ready to watch. Right. Okay. So what do you use then for like transcoding these videos or, you know, do you use something like Vimeo or no? No, I actually, I use FFmpeg. And on the back end, when a user uploads a video, it kicks off a Celery job, which processes the video. Um, I'm using S3, so, and then Django storages. So the video gets uploaded to S3 using uh, S3 acceleration just to make the experience of uploading a video better for the, the professionals. Uh, it triggers off a Celery job. The Celery job pulls the video down locally instead of trying to run FFmpeg against the S3 file. It's significantly faster. So I basically pull the file down locally, put it in a temp directory, and run FFmpeg on it. Um, a pretty complex FFmpeg uh, command, which adds an intro video and then edits the video to 720p HD. Um, I think 720p is acceptable for my platform. I didn't want to go the route of creating kind of like a rendition set or something where, you know, I have a 1080, a 480 like YouTube. I just don't think the need is there yet. Right. Wow. That's like a mix of like super low level hardcore and like super interesting at the same time. Because <laughs> <laughs> transcoding those videos or encoding them, whatever, very expensive operation CPU wise, right? Yeah, so I did get a compute-optimized uh, EC2 instance. So my code base is running on EC2. And I started off with a T2. And T2, obviously, is your general, you know, just works well for probably your general web applications uh, that aren't demanding traditional CRUD, just web database stuff. But when it comes to transcoding um, videos, uh, it didn't really quite cut it, and it was taking significantly longer than what was acceptable to be able to process these videos. So I switched over to a compute optimized EC2 instance and that dramatically dropped how long it took to process videos. Uh, a video that's about 10 minutes usually takes about five minutes to process because it does take it in whatever format and encodes it into 720 and then adds the intro video and then uploads it to S3. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So you mentioned you are on AWS. Is there a reason why or did you evaluate using what is their managed service for doing that video encoding stuff? I forget the name of it. Yeah, I forgot what it is. It's called Transcoder and then they have the 
they have another one, which is the new one. It's supposed to be like real time, um, super quality. That's like close to what television is. I don't know. Uh, I did try both. So running FFmpeg is great, but it is computationally expensive and it doesn't allow me to use my salary worker in a more green thread approach. So I have to use my salary worker to be CPU bound because obviously if I'm going to be running these FFmpeg you know, commands, I need my salary worker to be taking up a full CPU to be able to run that type of transcoding on that video. And um, the transcoding on AWS, it looked good on the surface, but you have to upload the video to a certain bucket so it triggers off a process and then it has like a callback mechanism. So I would expose an API endpoint on my app that AWS would hit after it's done so I could create the relationships in my database model. And I thought that was kind of error prone in a way, like if my app wasn't up ready to listen to it, if there was a hiccup, and I just, I just didn't kind of like it. And I felt like I had more control with Celery um, because if a task does fail, I can rerun it. And uh, there probably is a way with AWS too. But the costs actually were more than I expected. So I uploaded a video that I wanted encoded and it costed, I think, 10 to $15 to encode it in about three different formats. And I thought that was really expensive for my use case. Wait, 10 to $15 for one video? Yes, because it took the original video and encoded it in 1080p uh, 480p and 720. So this isn't something I'm doing now, but I just wanted to get an idea of what it would cost if I wanted to be able to provide, you know, a 480, 720, and 1080, similar to how YouTube does. And uh, I think it was about a 25-minute video, and it costed 10 to $15. Yeah. Uh, too bad we can't show memes on the podcast, but like survey says, no. <laughs> it depends on your you know, your volume, your throughput, and what it costs. So another platform that might be a viable solution if it takes too much developer time or they run a different architecture. So I was thinking about switching over to AWS Lambda eventually. And the, the good thing about Lambda is costs because, you know, your API requests are very small amount of time. You can set the memory limit to be like 256. So the costs are really low. But then how about tasks that run like video processing? Like if I'm uploading a 40 minute video, it's going to take longer than 15 minutes to transcode. So Lambda timeout was 15 minutes the last time I checked. So how do I do that in a Lambda environment? So I was like, ah, I need an EC2 and a Celery task will suffice for now until I come up with a better solution. Right. Now, maybe just to rewind a little bit before we go into more details about your AWS setup. like. What does the rest of your tech stack look like? Are you using Postgres? Are you running Docker, Nginx, anything like that? So local development, Docker, um, I don't have anything, like I don't have my local Postgres running with my app. I've done that in the past and Dockerizing an app just makes a lot of sense. Um, especially once you understand how Docker works enough to be able to go in there and modify your Docker Compose and your Docker file, it makes things really easy. Now on the deployment side, uh, using Redis in AWS, it's Elasticash. Um, using Postgres in AWS as well through RDS. I use it fully managed, so it does do nightly backups. Um, I prefer things that are kind of managed. Uh, I don't 
not really a DBA, so I don't really want to be dealing with like snapshots and backups and stuff like that unless I make a terrible mistake and I got to roll the database, the, the database back to a previous state. Um, EC2, uh, S3, and uh, a Route 53 for you know DNS stuff. Okay. And what about serving static files? Do you have Nginx in front of your Django web server? I guess Gunicorn possibly, UISGI. Which one do you use, by the way? Yeah, I'm using Gunicorn. Um, and for my static stuff, I am using S3 with um, CDN. So I am using CloudFront for my stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, CloudFront serves my static assets. And it works, it works pretty well. Do you also have like a... What is it? Maybe their load balancer in front of all of that to get the SSL certificate from Amazon as well or no? No. So my app does do SSL, but it's at the application layer, not at like the static asset stuff. My static assets, I don't really care. Um, they're pretty public stuff. And the the part that I would want to eventually, I think, want want a little bit more control over is um, my, my videos are hosted. And I'd I'd like to be able to do like the um, the cookie. There's a way to there's a way to make it so that I can give someone a pre-signed URL to an asset in an S3 bucket. But it's really difficult to do that when you have CloudFront in front. So right, I know what you mean because you want to be able to just have that link timeout after an hour or something like that. Yeah, so I'd want to be able to protect my static assets that are on my in my S3 bucket through. Uh, my CDN, which is CloudFront, but it makes it kind of difficult when CloudFront is in front of the S3 because there's like two layers of like permissions. S3 has its own way, and then CloudFront has like this concept of a uh, a signed cookie, but it's not really clear and cut on how to do it to make sure that the person only has as- access to an asset for a specific amount of time. Right. Yeah, the route I think I'm going to go with uh, on my end here, like I've never used Amazon CDN yet, but I would like to do kind of like domain level restriction. So like the video can only play back from my domain if someone tries to just, you know, hot link from somewhere, it just wouldn't work. Yeah, and I maybe there is a way to do that through CloudFront. Um, I'd have to take a look, but that would definitely be a good approach too to make sure that if someone's watching content on your platform, it's okay, but if they try to access the link outside, it's not. Yeah. So going back to your AWS setup with the EC2, are you just running one EC2 instance? And if you are, uh, is it managed by any type of like configuration management tools? No, right now it's just a single EC2. You know, hopefully at some point I'll, I'll get to the point where either I have to orchestrate, you know, EC2 deployments or set up some kind of auto scaling policy. Uh, that would be nice. But as of right now, it's just a single EC2 and it's not really done through configuration. I mean, I do have a fab file in my project, which can get an EC2 instance ready to be served as a, you know, to be able to, do, to serve the application. But I don't have any like cool DevOpsy kind of configuration. <laughs> right. Like not using Ansible or another comparable tool. No, I'm just using Fab right now to be able to deploy um, to my production server. So do you want to maybe just give a rundown on what Fab allows you to do? Does it like set up the server or just like the deploy aspect? It's both. So like I have Fab basically allows you to run, basically allows you to uh, write commands in Python. 
that you would run in a terminal, such as like, you know, SSHing into an EC2 server and then running commands. So, uh, you know, I've gone through several iterations of being able to set up a, late, uh, a Linux environment to be ready to serve my application. And it can be kind of annoying, right? You have all these kind of like little things that you have to remember. Um, so as you go ahead and set up a Linux environment, I write down the commands that I needed to do to get to that point, um, right? So installing the correct uh, packages. It's like if you have like stuff like I do, like FFmpeg, I have to write down all of the dependencies I need for my application to run. And luckily... Um, my Docker file kind of is a great outline for that because, you know, if my application doesn't run locally, I know I need to include a, a dependency as part of the Linux um, deployment process as well. So the fab file just runs a bunch of commands, primes the, uh, the server to be able to serve your application, and then runs git commands to be able to pull your application down, run your migrate, run your collect static, and then, you know, uh, triggers the... Uh, the gunny corn restart, the celery restart uh, via supervisor. Okay, so maybe do you want to just rewind rewind a tiny bit and maybe go through your entire deploy process? Like, what do you do to get code from your dev box running in the EC2 instance and restarted and ready to go? Yeah, I have a pretty simple setup now, and it, it works okay. I would like to leverage something like GitHub Actions and potentially um, set up a more formalized CI/CD process for sure. But currently right now, what I'm doing is, you know, I test things locally um, and make sure that my unit tests are passing so I don't introduce a regression. And when I feel comfortable with a piece of code that needs to go to production, I basically have a, a make file that specifies my command, which is like make deploy. And this calls my fab script, which basically SSH is into my production server, does a git pull uh, on my master branch, pulls it down, um, runs Python manage migrate, collects static, and then Django compress as well. So Django compress needs to be run after collect static to make sure that um, it has the, the newest version of the changes that you've made to CSS and JavaScript. And then um, it triggers my supervisor commands. So it'll restart gunny corn, it'll restart my celery, and then I'm good to go. I just deployed the latest code. Nice. When you say it pulls down for master, do you first push your code up to GitHub or somewhere else first? Yeah. So when I'm deploying, uh, I'm sorry, when I'm developing and I feel comfortable with a piece of code or a feature, I'll go ahead and deploy it up to master. Right. So I'll, I'll do a git push to master. So that way, by the time I run my deployment script, the latest code is in master so it can pull it down. So you mentioned using Docker. Uh, do you actually end up running a container in production, like, or do you use Docker Compose? Because it almost sounds like you kind of don't, but maybe I missed something. Yeah, so I only use Docker for development, and um, I've had really good experiences with it using development, but I haven't really transitioned to using something like a Docker container in production yet. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Plus, one cool thing, I mean, not to hate on Docker, I use it basically on all of my projects and very, very much appreciate what you can do with it. But when it comes down specifically to restarting a G-Unicorn process with or without Docker, I don't know if there's been like a regression in Docker, but without Docker, it can just reload very, very fast, like crazy, crazy fast, like less than a second fast. Do you notice that in your uh, case without using Docker? 
So you're talking about locally without using Docker versus using Docker? Yeah, like on your production box, when it gets to that point where you need to restart the G-Unicorn worker, you know, to make the new code go into effect, that operation probably happens like, not instantly, but probably less than a second, right? Yeah, I mean, when when supervisor re-triggers my restart, um, it does, it restarts Flower, Celery Beat, the Celery Worker, as well as G-Unicorn. And I mean, that takes a second and a half. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's many other things besides just the G-Unicorn part. But yeah, very, very fast. And I mean, you know, that little, little hiccup of maybe, you know, the web server not being available for 500 milliseconds, that's all the downtime you really get, which is amazing. Yeah. So sure. I mean, you you want to have zero downtime, but I think, you know, about a second is acceptable. Yeah. I mean, even if I were deploying like even once a day, I don't think I'd be unhappy with one second of downtime on a project that's hosted on one box. You know, it's like you're not running at Etsy scale right now. Yeah. And that's the thing is there's always room for improvement. And I know that there's certain parts of my process or my application that need to be improved. And uh, I'll just have to get there when when I see fit. But when you're starting on a project like like this, that uh, the feature set kind of grows or expands, you want to focus on the features so you get that recognition and you feel like you're actually building something. I think a lot of times as developers, we want to we focus on what's cool and what's the latest and greatest. And we focus so much on that that we end up getting sick of that project because nothing gets done. Yeah, and then it's funny, you do look at a platform. I'm pretty sure, and maybe don't quote me on this one, but I think Etsy uses PHP perhaps. And one of the reasons for using it, at least from a, a talk I watched a couple of years ago, was like there is no concept of needing to restart a web server. You just copy code onto the new server and the next request from Apache will serve it up. Like, you know, that old school tech is still quite useful. Yeah, so I, that's funny you say that because I, I was going through Etsy and the developer console on their website and I did see that a PHP file did serve it up because it saw something in there. And I just thought, I, I don't know how they're running this website on PHP at scale, but uh, they're doing it. Yeah, yeah. The tech talk I watched on that one, maybe I'll drop it into the show notes. Super good one about like how they deploy but going back to your site, maybe rewinding a little bit to your EC2 server, uh, do you happen to know the exact hardware specs of that T3 machine or like also what distro do you use? Yeah, so I use Ubuntu. Um, it might not be the most hipster, but it's always worked well for me. I've used also CentOS in the past and it was a little bit more rigid, but you, Ubuntu just seems to be the easiest to configure and get ready um, to serve a web app. So I right. use Ubuntu and um, started off with a T, I think it was a T3, and that had about a gig and a half of memory, um, one CPU. And then, like I said earlier, the FFmpeg stuff was definitely consuming a significant amount of resources. And the processor on the T family was just not what it needed to be for to be able to transcode videos. And uh, so I switched over to a C family. Um, I think I did a C5N large. So the C5N also has improved networking, which is really helpful because that's exactly what I need. I need processing, but I also need networking because I need to pull the file down and I need to push it back up. And it is an upload platform. So network is right behind CPU in terms of you know importance. Um, so I did go with a C5N large and I believe that has two 
two gigs of RAM and two processors. And that significantly improved things and it cost about $30 a month. And uh, I felt like that would work for the time being because I wasn't uploading videos all the time. Um, if I felt like videos were coming in significantly faster or that CN5 large wouldn't suffice, I could also uh, scale up to something better uh, with a stronger processor and more memory. Right. That is pretty cool, though, to see that you're able to do all of that encoding on the same box that serves the web app, all from, uh, what is it, dual core, two gigs of RAM. I mean, you do use RDS and Elasticache, but still, that's still good stuff, like one box. Yeah, so I'll I'll do like, um, I think it's like memproc. I can't remember the command on Linux, but while the transcoding is happening, you know, CPU usage is at 100%. It doesn't consume much memory. Uh, it's definitely a more computationally expensive thing than it is a memory thing. But, you know, if, if I do need to scale up at some point, it's nice to know that I can um, use Amazon, basically take a snapshot of my, uh, my storage device and just create another one. I found it really awesome where I basically create a snapshot of my system. My, my Linux distro in this case would be Ubuntu. The AMI is what they call it in AWS. So I create an image from an existing one or a snapshot. And then I can start a new EC2 instance of the same family type, say a larger size, and then point my Route 53 DNS settings to that new box. So I basically can get zero downtime and switch to a much more computationally intensive box than before. Right. So I guess the idea there would be you would keep both boxes running just for a day or two just to for DNS to propagate around the world and then shut down the old one when it's totally out of commission, right? Yeah, I've done that before when I switched from T from the T family to the C family. Um, after I deployed um, officially to production end of December, we started uploading more videos and I had to switch because um, it was pretty, uh, the experience was horrible from the uploading perspective. I mean, from the uploading perspective, the Django app deals with it. So the professional doesn't know. It's the background task. So there's, it's basically like a queue, right? Because I put a cap on the salary task to be uh, for an hour. So there can only be four video processes an hour. And I put that limit in there because I want to make sure that the rest of the app also doesn't come to you know, a screeching halt while all of this video processing is going on. Um, but, but it is nice to be able to spin up another box and then eventually just point your, your DNS entries to this new EC2 instance. Yeah. And what's really cool about that is like, you know, you picked a great architecture up front where, yeah, it does cost a little bit more money, but, you know, having your database outside of that same instance allows you to do that because if your database were on there, then you'd be in trouble because now it's like, well, I suddenly can't do that because now the data is going to get out of sync. Yeah. And that, I struggle with people trying to find the the most cost effective solution i think at a minimum you should at least have uh your database separate from your your application for that reason if you want to have redis on the same box that's fine because it's it's kind of somewhat supposed to be volatile like you shouldn't be putting things in redis that if they're gone it's the end of the world it should be just be like cached query sets or you know maybe like a template fragment just you know for uh, server-side rendering enhancements, performance enhancements. So that's fine. But like having your database on the same EC2 instance, that must make it really difficult to migrate. 
yeah, basically, I mean, you can do it, but you're going to have downtime, that's for sure. And even like user uploads, also nice to have outside the instance. And that one at least is fairly cheap, like, you know, compared to a database. Well, I guess videos may be a little expensive because they're pretty large in size, but typically like, you know, user avatars or some images or whatever is like a drop in the bucket, literally for like an S3 bucket in terms of price. Yeah, S3 is incredibly inexpensive. Um, I think I have 60 gigs worth of data on there and it costs me a couple of bucks a month, you know, like $2. Yeah, totally worth it. Now, imagine, you know, you're someone who don't have videos and you just have a little bit of JavaScript or CSS or, you know, bundles like that, a couple images, it's like literally cents. Yeah, and they have a free tier. I think it's it's pretty significant what AWS gives you for free tier stuff. You're a, you know, you can run it uh, a T2 micro, which some people might say, "Oh, it only has half a half a gig of RAM, right? 500 megs." But you could run that for 24 hours for free. That's their free tier. So you, you know, AWS does offer some nice free tiers for their different services, S3 included. I think I think they give you 20,000 puts and gets uh, free a month. Now, granted, if you're running something like Collect Static, um, that does do a lot of gets because I'm using um, Collect Fast, and that actually goes out to AWS and does like a some kind of SHA diff or something to see if the file that's on AWS is different than what I have locally. So I am using a lot of gets there, but nevertheless, AWS does give you some nice stuff for free. Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking about AWS a little bit more. Do you use them for things like logging and metrics and error reporting or no? So I did have a dashboard built out. So AWS has limited um, CloudWatch monitoring for EC2 instances. I mean, they have they have like high level stuff to let you know whether it's in a good condition or not. But like because I'm running something like FFmpeg on there, I kind of wanted more granular information. So I had to download this Perl this Perl script onto the EC2 instance following their guides to publish events to the, um, to the cloud. So now I'm able to pick up things like memory usage um, and stuff like that, which isn't available out of the box for EC2 monitoring. I have, I have monitoring on my database as well, but to be honest with you, my, my application is not database heavy at all. So I can't even imagine if I do scale, I don't think my database is going to be the issue at all. It's mainly a it's a it's a computation computationally intensive application. I don't think we went over this, but what is the size of uh, the RDS instance? Um, I got one of the smaller ones. Um, I believe it's one gig of memory. It's one of the smaller ones, and to be honest with you, CPU usage has never gone over three percent. And um, memory usage stays around 500. So I have 500 free and, you know, CPU utilization. It might go up to like 5%. I've seen it at the most. It's just really not a database heavy application, really. It's, it's more of a permission check. Just think about it. If you have a course and you have a user, the only thing you really need to check and know much about is whether this user is authorized to watch these videos it's more of like static assets, right? So like a user goes to a course, the things that are heavy about it are stored on S3, such as the video, like the images regarding that course. So my database models are basically a bunch of references to assets that exist in S3. They're really light and there's not much computational stuff that's done on the database side. Yeah, yeah, I only do a very, very 
tiny bit of caching because I'm an idiot and I like premature optimization. But like, I like to kind of calculate, like, you know, we went back to have you, you have sections and lessons. I have the same deal, but I also like to calculate like how long in minutes or hours is a specific section as well as individual lessons. So like in the table of contents, you can see those stats and, you know, I need to calculate that based on the seconds of the video. So instead of just doing that math and querying and summing all the time, I just throw that, you know, into a little cache. Yeah, I have that too. So um, when a video gets uploaded, I get the duration of the video. And then with a signal, when, you know, a video gets finalized, I can add that to the full course duration. So like it'll go through, it'll go through all of the, the videos in the course. So there's multiple tiers. The course has a duration, which is a, a total of all of the videos. And then a section has the duration based on the videos for that section. So I'm doing something similar too. Yeah, it makes sense to do it your way as well too, because it's like, yeah, I don't know about your business, but with mine, it's very, very, very infrequent that I add new videos to an existing course beyond when I first set it up. Agreed. So going back to your site here, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit like, how do you plan for disasters and unexpected events? Like, I know you mentioned that you have RDS managing your backups. Do you just put those onto an S3 bucket sometime? Yeah, so they're, they have like default configurations when it comes to management. So they do, they do backups every 24 hours. I think I can configure that, but I think for what the app is, uh, I think that'll suffice for now. Um, the rest of the application, like if Redis crapped a bet or just didn't exist anymore, that wouldn't be the end of the world because um, it's designed to be volatile in a way. So yeah, I mean, I don't have a ton of disaster recovery, but I think the things that I do have, AWS is kind of managing them. So when it comes to other forms of disaster recovery, do you have any of AWS's alarms set up, like the CloudWatch alarms? Like basically maybe if like memory usage goes above 90% for 10 minutes, you'll get emailed? I've set those up in the past for another project and I have yet to set it up for mine. But after deploying the app and kind of seeing what its regular usage is and my current traffic, I don't, I'm not sure that it, I would gain a lot by going ahead and configuring that stuff yet. I hope I do have to at some point. Right. Yeah, that'd be a great problem to have. I'm so successful, I need to get notified when things happen. <laughs> Isn't that a great problem? Yeah. But I mean, I guess on a similar avenue here, do you do any type of uh, like checking to make sure the site is up, like a health check endpoint that gets pinged every five minutes? I have set up status cake. Um, I've used them for other projects as well, where they just ping, I think, their free tier is every five minutes. So I have that and that just gives me a sanity check and it sends out a text message if uh, certain criteria is met. So like they have their free tier for performance checks. So if a site, ta uh, if a certain endpoint takes longer than X amount of time to render or if it's down, um, I'll get a text message. And I also monitor uh, Celery Flower as well because like I said earlier, a lot of a lot of the application is kind of distributed and things happen in the background. And Celery would be a point of failure where something important didn't happen. Right. Yeah, I almost forgot that you're running Flower. It's really cool, though, that you're running not only the Unicorn, you know, the Django app, you have the Celery worker, you have the Celery beat server, and you have Celery Flower all on that uh, EC2 instance. Yeah, and I was kind of concerned about that as well because a lot of the memory usage when you start, you know, having multi-process uh, G-Unicorn processes, 
they each take up their own, you know, chunk of memory because they are, you know, they have a Python VM in memory. They're running your application. So that was one of the things that when I was on a smaller T2 instance, um, that was actually consuming most of my memory was running Gunicorn with like, I think, uh, three workers. And it was like consuming most of my memory. So that is something you need to watch out for too if you have a smaller instance is uh, running multiple G-Unicorn workers when you don't have enough RAM. Yeah, I think the docs even mentioned something about, uh, you know, a good starting point might be number of CPU cores times two. So, you know, on a dual core box, that's going to spin up four workers. That could be a lot. Yeah, and in that case, that's exactly my case was um, it was on a dual core box, but I only had... I think it was 1.5 gigs of RAM. And, you know, I'm looking at, I was looking at the memory on the box, a detailed memory. Gunicorn, uh, Junicorn was taking, I think about 750 megs. And I was like, wow, that's, that's half of my memory, you know? So I guess on that note, maybe we can go into the end of this podcast and talk a little bit about some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this project. Yeah, I mean, my tip is, I've, I've changed a lot as an engineer um, and earlier in my career, like I've said, even in this podcast, I focused a lot on what was the latest and greatest. And I was almost susceptible to that in this project as well. Like I told you, I almost used Go, which to be honest, is a bad decision for the, uh, a project like this. This is, this is very much a Django style application. And I think Django serves it well. And my advice for people out there looking to maybe start a project similar to this, or even just a project in general is pick the tool that you're most productive with because you can change something uh, if it doesn't suit your needs later, but at least get something out the door. And I think that was, that was where my focus was on this project uh, because I've been burned out so much with other projects. I wanted to make sure that I worked as quickly as possible to get something out the door. Granted, this does introduce technical debt, and that is something you're going to need to address at some point, but it's much better to have a project deployed and start getting feedback than have something in a, inside a GitHub repository that's never been looked at. Yeah, absolutely. That is fantastic advice. And yeah, I mean, you know, building the tool in your familiar tech choice, like even if you build up some technical debt or you decide that, oh man, technology is not good like six months down the line, you're going to learn so much in that six months that if you were to rewrite it in a different tech stack, which chances are you won't have to, you know, it's way, way, way easier to re-architect something based on real feedback versus when you've never built it before even once. Yeah. And you don't really know what type of feedback you're going to get until you get something out there. I mean, you could be way off on what the market wants or what a user might think the next best feature or enhancement is. I think it's important you get something out there and actually get real people using it so that they can give you feedback because ultimately they're the people who are going to uh, spend money on the product or are interested in it enough to know what's the next best thing that you should work on. So Sean, thanks so much for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was great having you on. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub, profile, anything like that? So my Instagram is... For the, for the project is at confectionary connect. And that's with an underscore in between the two words. So it would be at confectionary underscore connect. It just makes it a little bit more legible. Okay. Yeah. I'll make sure to drop a link to that in the show notes. And on that note to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the running in production podcast. 
You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.